from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of green business. Highlights from our 12th annual report, taking the pulse of corporate sustainability. Perspectives on the report from the Green Biz editorial team. Why emotional intelligence is the new green. And DHL's plans for a clean fleet. We're delivering this week on 350. It's February 8th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me per usual is our Jersey girl, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Or my Oakland boy, I guess I call you, huh? Yeah, exactly. I was going <laughs> to ask you how you felt about being referred to as Jersey girl, but I hadn't done that in the past, so I thought, you know, we could at least do one of those since you're over there in Midland Park, I New Jersey. I do like the song, I will admit. Cool. Oh, wow. It's, uh, glad it's Friday. Uh, it's been a crazy week. We had the state of green business, the state of the union. We, you know, going full bore pedal to the metal on Green Biz 19 and the Greenfin Summit and the Sustainable Sourcing or Supply Chain Summit. And uh, wow. Um, I, 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 as much as I'm looking forward to this event at the end of the month, I'll kind of be glad when it's March. <laughs> <laughs> March madness is actually March saneness for us, right? <laughs> exactly. March March comes in like a lamb, actually, and maybe it'll leave like a lion. But anyway, it's a it, it's just a busy time and a lot going on. I uh, I spoke to uh, give a little presentation to a uh, class from America, uh, Arizona State University, uh, Bruno Sarda, our good friend uh, from NRG, who's a uh, adjunct there and love talking to the students. I love their questions, always so smart and thoughtful and um, wide-eyed in some respects, but in a good way, because they just, they're, they're looking at this stuff new and it's, it, it's really interesting. And, you know, the state of green business, uh, which gives us a chance to pull together, you know, some of the exciting and hopefully impactful trends that are taking place out there that we see probably ramping up in the next year or two. Uh, it's just a great time to, you know, deliver a good midwinter boost of optimism. And I'm actually getting my midwinter boost of research. I have cannot even count how many reports have come my way. There's been some great data on supply chain initiatives, right? Uh, companies that are making progress in working with their supply chains, Tons of circular economy research. Very interesting. Um, everyone seems to be putting some some muscle behind understanding what's making and prompting companies to switch and, and how they're dealing with that. And so there's a lot of great things to think about right now. I, I, do, I always, I love the new year because you get, you get uh, infused with knowledge and optimism and, and opportunity. And uh, although at the same time, managing that is quite difficult as it's almost too much. I, I don't know what to do with all this information. It's great. Yeah. Well, I, I highly commend uh, listeners to look at our monthly column report report. So nice. We named it twice, uh, which is a rundown of just the most recent crop of reports. It's put together by Devin Edwards from the Corporate Eco Forum. 
And uh, this most recent one, I think it's going to run early next week, has three or four great reports on the circular economy. Some of them are sector-specific or material-specific or regional-specific. Um, there is, I, I'm, just, I'm just kind of blown away by how fast that framework is catching on. You know, we talked about Loop a couple weeks ago that was to, uh, released and announced at Davos. And there's so much going on. I mean, I have to say that maybe it's a pat on, a pat on our own back, but our circularity conference that we're debuting in June in Minneapolis is, I think we're going to nail the timing on that. Uh, it's just in terms of the inflection point. And so far, the interest uh, from uh, sponsors, registrants, speakers has been has been pretty big. But yeah, just so much report coming out. I just I, I can't keep up. Yeah, and I, I'm going to plug next week's podcast a little bit here. I've got an interview with uh, ING about how they're helping fund the the transition. And so I'm I'm uh, encouraging listeners to tune in next week too <laughs> to hear uh, hear what we have to say about that. Well, I'm hoping that these uh, fine people tune in every week. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting aspect of it. We talk about the supply chain or supply system approach. We talk about the product design. We talk about sort of the change in, in business models. And by the way, great one this week, which we didn't cover, but others did, that IKEA is getting into the furniture subscription business uh, where you can, you know, Basically, they'll continue to own the furniture that you have in your home or office, and they'll repair it. They take it back if you get tired of it. Um, and of course, you know when you get into that, they have to design it differently and use different parts and materials in the way they manufacture it. Uh, you know, screws instead of glue or whatever, uh, and uh, so they can take dismantle it or take replace swap out parts. And it's it's a it's just a really interesting change. And again. I, I'm really amazed at how quickly this is happening. But before we go forward, let's go a little bit back into the Week in Review. I will get us started this week, Joel. I am looking at a couple of pieces, um, aside from our massive SOGBI State of Green Business Report. We'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but uh, one thing I'll point out, because I think it's a particularly important theme for the year, is six themes for scaling corporate action on the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And it comes from James Gome with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And it's a great recap of why this year is a great uh, time to look at your strategy, to understand where you are to make sure you have the right tools in place and to look at the link between science-based targets and the sustainable development goals. I think that, that we'll hear a lot more about that. I think as companies do embrace that more methodical, science-based approach to setting their sustainability goals, that that will feed into the, the sustainable development agenda, if you will. So it's a great piece on what you can do this year to think about it and sort of put, connects the dots. And that was one piece that I wanted to point out. I also highly encourage you to, to, to focus on this piece uh, by a contributing writer. It's called Reimagining Rare Earth Elements in a Sacrifice Zone-Free Future. A little bit of a mouthful, full, but uh, it looks at the rare earth 
uh, elements, the, the things that are used in a lot of batteries and, and lots of different electronics devices, and it, it actually debunks a little bit the notion that they're so rare. What makes them rare is that they've been limited as far as where we've actually went and found them. So it's a great piece on how companies and countries can think about where these things should be mined, where they should be um, sourced, if you will, and also, of course, to go back to our circular theme, how we can do a better job at mining, if you will, these, these elements out of existing products. So again, another piece that'll kickstart uh, your thinking in, in an area that's important for the, the technology supply chain and a lot of other equipments. So I've got a couple stories I want to point out. One is this piece by Dan Lashoff, who's the U.S. Director for WRI, the World Resources Institute, called Five Things to Look for in the Green New Deal. Now, we've been hearing a lot about this uh, Green New Deal, and uh, there's standard bearers uh, in the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and in the Senate, Ed Markey, uh, senator from Massachusetts, uh, are reportedly teaming up on a bill that's going to start to define the core principles. What Dan does in this piece, which I really like, is to just give us some food for thought. Like, what does clean energy mean and how quickly can we actually get to 100%? Uh, what kinds of infrastructure do we need to support a clean energy economy? Should the Green New Deal include a carbon tax? Um, what happens to fossil fuel industry workers? How do we get to the just transition? And, um, you know, so much doesn't answer the question, so much as raises them. Uh, as this Green New Deal is, you know, so far this kind of a big arm wave until we get to some of the details. It just sounds really good. You know, I mean, we like the New Deal. We like green. So what's not to like about a green New Deal? But this is uh, just, I think, starts to get to some of the substance and the complexity that we have to be thinking about as we do this. So that's one piece. The other one is just sort of really interesting and maybe a little bit of a departure for us by my longtime friend and co-conspirator, Rory Bakke, who is uh, now a senior sustainability practitioner with uh, Haley and Aldrich, uh, and wrote a piece called EQ, uh, Emotional Intelligence, is a critical tool for the purpose-driven company, and ties this concept of emotional intelligence to sustainability. Um, and it gets a lot into, you know, purpose, which is this word that's sort of come into vogue uh, over the past couple of years, companies with purpose, or millennials want to work for companies with purpose. I mean, I think they're talking about social and environmental progressive purpose, but because uh, most companies have purpose. But I like what Rory did here, just sort of put some bugs in our ear about, you know, how do you think about EQ and sustainability, EQ, defined as the organizational capacity to be aware of, control, and express emotions, and how to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetic empathetically. What does that mean for a company? What does that mean for an organization? So this was a really provocative piece. Yeah, and I, I liked it because, I mean, I, hey, heck, the reason I work for GreenBiz is it has a purpose. <laughs> I mean, it's really, I could, this story spoke to me because it is my world, right? And I love the focus on how you have to structure your organization around supporting this idea. So what is it that 
someone does that that makes you feel good about what you're doing is <laughs> I mean it sounds a little touchy feely maybe but but it does come to encouraging certain sorts of behavior over others um, it comes it comes down to in, in, incenting um, people to focus on things that that, that demonstrate purpose uh, it encourages collaboration if you think about it you want you want if everyone is going to have a purpose you need to share ideas in, in a more constructive and collaborative way and it, it is a structure that I think needs to be in place in order for for teams to move forward and, and it does in my mind exactly map to what sustainability teams are are trying to do they're trying to bring that behavior into their their entire organization it's not just a little adjunct off here on the side it's it's embedded now and or or aspires to be embedded if you will in an, across an entire organization. Yeah, and that's why I work for Green Biz. Is that, yeah, the purpose is of course, but but also the the compassion and the, the amazing team and the way the team works together and the 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 empathy and self awareness, um, self organizing aspect of the team. I'm I'm you know this is I always say this is we've got around thirty people now, and I always say you know this is the biggest company I've ever worked for, which is true. Um, but it's uh, I've never really had the experience of, of having, you know, that kind of organizational dynamic and having to, you know, I know all about office politics because I've read about it and know others who've suffered a lot of that. And I just uh, I feel so blessed that we haven't had to experience it at GreenBiz. But Rory, just to close this out, she talks about in a world of changing expectations of companies and the people who work there, Raising EQ can be a simple yet profound practice. Developing this skill set can lead to increased awareness and compassion for others, resulting in improved capabilities for strategy, collaboration, and resilience. So, I, you know, not something we talk a lot about in sustainability and probably not that much in business. And yeah, maybe some people think it is a little California woo-woo, but this is actually about organizational effectiveness and um, I, I, I love what's going on here. So this is the week that we put out our annual 12th annual State of Green Business report. Always feels a little bit like um, delivering a, a baby, not that I want to underestimate what's involved with that feat, but we are we giving birth to this takes a, a lot of uh, pushing and pulling, and, and we did, I think, another great report, thanks to the editorial team, thanks to uh, Danny Kelly and Samantha Ho with the uh, production team, and of course, thanks to our great partners at, at TrueCost, part of S&P Global, who collaborate with us on this every year. And you know, for those who somehow haven't tapped into the state of green business every year since we've done this since 2008, we look at uh, 10 key trends and a basket of, of metrics, about 30 or so metrics, that assess how and how fast and how well companies are, are looking uh, at addressing environmental and sustainability impacts. The trends are written by the Green Biz editorial team that metrics come from TrueCost, S&P, and uh, based on their uh, data from the uh, 500 companies that make up the S&P 500 and another group of companies that make up the S&P Global 1200. So we've got a, a lot of companies here and uh, you know, looking at um, how we're doing. 
Yes, and of course you, if, if you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend that you settle down with a, a cup of coffee and get, get, get reading. But you also can get listening because, uh, Joel, you didn't mention that you were on a, a webcast this week with Libby Burnick, uh, and I'm, I'm spacing out on her title, but she was one of our key collaborators on the report. Um, and you guys did a briefing on, on some of the trends. And I was listening. <laughs> I was lurk lurking. Oh, Libby is the managing director and global head of corporate business for TrueCost, which is part of S&P Global, as you mentioned. I can speak to this because I wasn't doing it, but I, uh, there were a number of highlights. I, I'm always amazingly astounded by how thoughtfully and succinctly and, and clear, with such clarity, Libby is always able to deliver the data highlights. And so I figured as when I was picking my highlights of the webcast that I would share that, that one with you. So I would like to uh, cue up a clip from Libby that walks you through the main findings of the SOGB report. Sustainability management and disclosure continues to grow in scale. We've got more companies doing more on sustainability. There's broader, deeper action by companies who are already working on sustainability issues. And then we see more companies getting started. So now, for example, 85% of S&P 500 companies publish a sustainability report. That's a 20% jump in the past five years. And this year, one of the really exciting trends was that we saw a whopping 28% increase in companies that are setting targets in order to reduce their impacts. So again, broader disclosure and management, but also more meaningful engagement on sustainability by setting those targets. Companies are on the right trajectory, but they need, up, need to speed up and scale up their ambition. Now, carbon emissions dropped by 9% over the last five years, but those reductions fall way short of climate goals. They're only about 16% of what's needed to meet the commitments made in the Paris Agreement. So again, the need for speeding up and scaling up ambition. As another example, we have overall natural capital costs dropped a bit in 2017, but the cost of these corporate environmental impacts are still about two times higher than net income. Therefore, what this means is that companies are still significantly exposed to financial risk from environmental regulations, policy changes, new taxes on carbon, and the like. And the investor community has taken note of these risks. Just this past week, S&P Global Ratings has announced that they will call out ESG issues specifically in over 2,000 credit rating reports in 2019. Now, on the positive side, uh, one of the more interesting and exciting trends is that investment and capital allocation is showing an environmental benefit. So the work is paying off. There were about $250 billion in green bond issuance last year. About a third of those were corporate green bond issues. 
And of that, we calculate that about 950 million tons in greenhouse gas emissions were avoided by those investments, largely due to renewable energy financing. One of the areas that's really interesting is the finance piece of this, what we refer to as Greenfin. Uh, and, and Libby wrote a piece called Green Loans Promise a Lower Cost of Capital, talking about the world of, of bo green bonds and green loans and how companies with good environmental, social and governance, ESG, scores are starting to be able to take advantage uh, of that through a l lower interest rates on loans. That, to me, feels a bit of a game changer um, that, you know, when being a good sustainability citizen, if you will, corporate citizen, means that money costs you less. Um, that it hits companies, uh, could, could be millions and millions of dollars a year uh, benefiting companies, could certainly well more than pay for their sustainability teams. Um, and I think this is just beginning, but we're going to see more on that. So here's Libby Burnick from True Cost talking a little bit more about that. On green bonds, we're seeing a, a wide range of issuers. We have municipal governments, for example, that are issuing green bonds. We have corporations that are issuing green bonds. And there's quite a, a regional mix and variety uh, on these issuances. Uh, record issuance, uh, again, last year, and S&P ratings, again, uh, indicating that they expect to see uh, record growth this year in green bond issuance, uh, just shy of about $300 billion this year for a wide range of projects. So things like renewable energy, uh, clean water, water improvement systems, uh, green infrastructure, uh, green transit. So there's a wide range of projects that are being financed. On the green loan side, again, we had about $32 billion in issuance and a number of leading banks uh, stepping in on this, uh, in particular ING Bank, uh, BBVA, City, and then uh, about 15 corporates who were uh, engaged with them to receive some of these loans. So companies like Danone, uh, Olam, Wilmar, uh, Philips, so a wide range of companies across many different sectors. So. Uh, it's open and available to all, I guess, is the message that we want to send. What's interesting, Joel, about these loans is that unlike bonds, they can be for operational purposes or any purposes. There's one example for um, with a company that has identified green lending that will focus on their supply chain. Um, so there are many different opportunities, and in some cases, uh, we're seeing ESG-linked loans, where a company's overall uh, corporate ESG performance is what's being tied to lower lending. It's pretty exciting because what that means is that these loans uh, can be smaller than bonds, so it makes them more accessible to smaller and medium-sized businesses. And it also means, as you point out, that these monies can be allocated towards general corporate initiatives rather than specific investments in new technologies, for example. So we, we asked each of the writers to reflect on their themes for the, the State of Green Business Report, and as well as what surprised them, and, and to give us some insight into 
some of the things I thought were unusual. I will get us started with the two pieces that I wrote, the first of which was on energy productivity. The title, Companies Double Down on Energy Productivity. Now, I like to think of this concept as the science-based evolution um, of the more familiar energy efficiency meme that has been part of the Sustainable Business Toolkit for decades. The idea with energy productivity is to translate power consumption data into a financial metric, one that might be more familiar to executives in the C-suite. So you could talk about watts per widget if you're a manufacturer, or you could talk about megawatt hours per worker if your company is a services or consulting firm, or whatever measure makes most sense given um, your company's business model. I, I love the, the way one industry executive put it. It's energy productivity is the macro to energy efficiency's micro. The big push for this is coming from the climate group, the Alliance to Save Energy, and the World Green Buildings Council. They're evangelizing the concept through the EP100 campaign. And they figure that if they can convince 100 multinational companies to double their economic output for every unit of energy, they could um, that could cut the equivalent of taking 37 million cars off the road for one year. So Japanese telco, Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, for example, has embraced a mission of generating twice the amount of data traffic for every megawatt of energy that they consume, and they're shooting to do this by 2025. What surprised me the most as I was researching the story was how few U.S. companies are involved. So Hilton and Salesforce were two notable examples, and actually the list features quite a few corporate partners from India, and that is in large part because... The, the effort did soft launch there, right? So it makes sense that that would be a, a focus. But it's also because companies there view energy productivity as one way to leapfrog their domestic and international rivals. So it's a way of getting ahead. It's a concept that they're, they're using to, uh, to differentiate. The other piece that I did, Joel, was on super pollutants, my, one of my favorite topics. Um, and that super pollutants, for those of you who haven't been focusing on it like I have, that's things like methane, black carbon, you know, chloro, chlorofluorocarbons and hydrofluorocarbons. And none of these things have a long lifespan in the atmosphere. They can be days or decades, um, you know, compared with the centuries that carbon dioxide hangs around. But they do have an outsized negative impact while they're around. So... More is being done by cities, companies, and states to address it, um, and it, it could even be a business opportunity. So I, I, I noticed that Smithfield Farms has uh, a joint venture with a utility company in Virginia, Dominion Energy, and it is basically um, turning methane into electricity. So it's, it's becoming a business opportunity for, for some organizations. The whole HFC, the hydrofluorocarbon issue is particularly concerning because as the earth warms up, more people want things like air conditioning and refrigeration. So that's why this is one of the biggest um, challenges right now. And one of the things that surprised me the most as I was researching this story was that actually, um, even though the Trump administration has been like shooting down dozens of environmental protections, um, the U.S. EPA is actually pumping up regulations for nitrogen oxide, which is one of the, the super pollutants that is of concern. So it actually seems to be an area where the Trump administration might do something, and that was surprising. So Joel, 
What did you write about and what surprised you? Well, I wrote about uh, reuse, uh, making a comeback. Uh, this is the stuff we've been talking about uh, a lot lately. A couple weeks ago, we saw the launch of Loop from uh, TerraCycle and, uh, and a bunch of uh, big brands, uh, Clorox, Coca-Cola, Mars, Mondelez, Mondelez uh, Nestle, PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, etc. But reuse has been, and I all, all apologies to you, Heather, the redheaded stepchild in the three R's of reduce, reuse, and recycle. Um, it, it, we've, you know, it's been mostly plastic or shopping bags or other things like that that we, you know, carefully, you know, keep and use again. But now we're getting into the reuse of consumer packaged goods. But that's only one part of the story. Another part of reuse has to do with fixing, upgrading, keeping things in circulation. So there's this uh, repair cafe, a chain that was born about a decade ago in Europe, in Amsterdam specifically, now has about 1,500 outlets worldwide where you can go and either have somebody uh, fix your stuff or you can fix it yourself. There's people who will show you what to do, electricians, seamstresses, carpenters, mechanics, etc. And and that's that's interesting. And then the other part of reuse that's is is that uh, re-commerce. You know, we've written about Yertle, and there's a bunch of other companies like Rent the Runway and uh, Real Renewal Workshop and ThreadUp, where uh, products just get keep in circulation through multiple people. Or in the case of Yertle, uh, which it provides this white label service for REI, Eileen Fisher, and Patagonia, where you can return products uh, that you don't want anymore that are used, uh, hopefully um, not too shabby, get store credit, uh, the, the, the product goes back on sale as a, as a well-worn product. In the, in the case of Patagonia, that's their brand. Company gets to sell the same thing twice. The consumer gets a much uh, cheaper price on a, a name brand like Patagonia, which can be kind of pricey. Um, anyway, it's just another way of keeping things. So I guess what surprised me is when you put it all together, how much is going on and how many uh, big companies are, are recognizing that this is not just a sort of niche uh, or sort of crunchy kind of thing, but this has a lot of potential. So I'm, I'm excited for that potential. And it's something that's part and parcel, again, of the circular economy that we'll continue to monitor. And then the other piece was about science-based targets. Uh, beyond carbon. And we've talked in the past about uh, this effort by a group of NGOs, about 25 of them, that uh, helped to create the science-based targets for carbon, where companies basically say, what's our fair share of climate change based on our size, operation, sector, etc. Um, and now I'm starting to look at that, how do you develop science-based targets for things like water or land use or biodiversity? Uh, much more complex in, in, in many ways, but uh, to the extent that this catches on, and right now there are a little over 500 companies that have now adopted science-based targets for climate change, uh, to the extent this catches on and becomes a, a thing, really, um, it really could accelerate how we think about and plan for and, and companies making commitments around land use or water or biodiversity in a way that we know is real, that is not just greenwash, that is um, based in science and, uh, and really rooted in what needs to happen, what all companies need to be doing. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm not, not sure if I have a surprise here. I think it's going to be surprising uh, you know, if this takes off quickly because it's going to be 
it's a long road to get from here to those science-based targets. So um, I'm surprised that the conversation is, is picking up fairly quickly, but it'll be uh, definitely wait and see to see how this goes and when this, if ever, comes to light. So that's enough about us. Let's tune into some of the others, uh, hear what they had to say. Hi, I'm Katie Fahrenbacher, senior writer and analyst covering transportation for GreenBiz, and I wrote the trend electric buses and trucks charge ahead. My piece is focused on how the first heavy-duty electric vehicles that are being electrified today are transit buses, particularly in China where the government has aggressive mandates and incentives for EVs. It's making sense to electrify transit buses now because they tend to have dedicated routes, return to a depot to charge at night, and often need to meet state and local air pollution rules. But after buses, various types of trucks will be the next to electrify as the big automakers wake up to the market and the cost of batteries continue to drop. Startups and large OEMs are starting to build electric pickup trucks, delivery vans, and garbage trucks to sell to companies and cities. What surprised me most about this trend was just how dominant China is in this market. 99% of the world's electric transit buses operate on the roads in Chinese cities like Shenzhen, and it's supposed to stay that way for years to come. While I'm excited to see this bus and truck electrification trend unfold over the next five years, the bulk of the action won't be happening in my backyard, though California is also a leader, but will emerge in China's largest cities. Hi, I'm Holly Seacon, associate editor at GreenBiz. I wrote one article for the State of Green Business 2019 report this year called Soil Becomes Fertile Ground for Climate Action. My article looked at how companies, as they're working to build more resilient supply chains and follow through on sustainability goals, are increasingly turning to the soil that most of their products grow in. What I was most surprised to learn about when I was researching for this story was what a wide breadth and diversity of companies are already talking about soil as a solution, but also the early stage that these plans were in currently. So it seems that a lot of companies are interested in sustainable agriculture as more than a buzzword. but the action so far seems to be partnering with research institutions and universities, which is a really important step. Um, but the next step, the actionable goal, is to actually work with producers and growers who are directly or indirectly in, in supply chains to provide them with the data, the tools, um, the better fertilizer, the better irrigation systems that these producers will actually need to to focus on soil quality and sustainability as facets of their growing production cycles. So it's a really important time for this um, as as a great deal of soil around the world has already been degraded and population is expanding constantly. So I think that companies prioritizing this issue is really great. Um, I'm excited by the progress and I want companies to continue to prioritize the issue and the work even quicker. I'm John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst at GreenBiz, and I lead the GreenBiz Executive Network, our member-based peer-to-peer learning forum for sustainability professionals. I wrote this year's chapter of the State of Green Business Report that describes how sustainability is becoming embedded in a number of different departments, with big upticks in supply chain, procurement, facilities, and energy management. What surprised me most in our research for our fifth State of the Profession report was the finding that 58% of survey respondents from large organizations with revenues greater than a billion dollars 
said their organization's sustainability programs would continue on their current trajectory, even if the organization's sustainability leader and CEO both left. Not just that, but only 17% said their programs would not continue. And just to round things out, 25% just didn't know. The reason I find that a bit surprising is that in having led the Green Biz Executive Network for the past 11 years, I've witnessed that one of the biggest events that determines whether an organization chooses to become a network member or fails to renew is a change in senior leadership, and specifically the CEO. In our research, it's even more surprising if you take out those who replied that they didn't know. Then the percentage of programs that are, well, sustainable jumps to 77%. This is incredibly encouraging and reinforces our findings around how large corporations are embedding sustainability resources across their organization. We hope in the future, we'll seek to track how these embedded resources are making companies more competitive, more productive, and more profitable. Hello there, this is Katie Farrenbucker again, senior writer and analyst covering transportation with GreenBiz. And as I mentioned earlier, the market for electric buses and trucks is really starting to get going. And there was a lot of discussion about the commercial electric vehicle market at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Mobility Summit in downtown San Francisco this week. I checked out the excellent show and had a chance to sit down with Greg Hewitt, the CEO of DHL Express, the U.S. division of the German shipping giant Deutsche Post DHL Group. DHL has a plan to be a zero emissions company, including across its over 66,000 vehicle fleet by 2050. It's a huge commitment. For Hewitt, that means by 2025, he needs to lower the emissions dramatically of 1,800 of his vehicle fleet in the U.S., and he's hoping to convert those all to electric. But it's going to be really hard. One reason is that the market right now is missing certain heavy-duty electric vehicles that are economic, can carry a heavy load, and can make regular drives of over 200 miles or so. Hewitt had this to say about that missing piece. That's the part that we're not seeing, where where too many of our stations today were driving more than 200 miles uh, kind of from town to town doing international deliveries, that the charge is not there and the infrastructure's not at every service center where even they could stop and charge up on the road. So that's what's probably holding us back, that I'm looking for the supply side to step up and evolve and find a way to do that. And I would say the technology is probably there, but the weight and the, and the cost is not in alignment yet. But DHL has been creative about finding vehicles that fit its needs in the past, even when the market hasn't provided them. The German company actually worked with a startup to build its own vehicles. Hewitt told me a bit about this strategy. One of our strategies, if you look at Deutsche Post, was if they can't build them, we'll do it ourselves. And you look at what Germany did when they're, when the demand for vehicles for the postal network was and, and getting to that critical mass of electric wasn't there, worked with a startup and built kind of street scooter and now can supply our own demand in that market. I think we're looking at options. How do you take street scooter global? And I don't think it's, it, it's not a simple thing, but it's one where we're talking to manufacturers in, North, in the North American market and saying, could we take that concept here and do production 
here and what does that look like and how does that feel? And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find everything you ever want to know about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this time around. While you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Energy Weekly comes out on Thursdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three, too. Heather and I will be back next week. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>